Be seated. title of this morning's message is, We Live in the Age of Easter. Did you know that technically we today live in an age that is represented completely, utterly, by the resurrection? Christ was resurrected. And this morning we're going to reason that because He was resurrected, those who have faith in Him are living now in the age between the first resurrection, the first fruits of the resurrection, and our resurrection. Easter is not completed. It's a, it's a completed story in the mind of God, but to you and to me, as we live and experience, we experience His resurrection, we experience His power, but not fully yet until the end comes and there's a final res- resurrection. So we live between two Easter's. In the power of the first, we go to meet the second. And so that's why we celebrate That's why we're excited this morning. The Scripture says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God. That's That's very important. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with Him for a thousand a millennia, a thousand years. Revelation 20, verse 6. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called away into the clouds to meet the Lord. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All who are dead in Christ will be resurrected in the second Easter. From Adam until he comes again, all who die are in Christ if they believe and have faith in him. And they will be resurrected when he appears to us in the clouds and when he calls us, the the remaining church, the remaining of the chosen, to be with them in the air. And there we will always be. For we know... With Him, that is. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 1-5, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly home, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we were still in this tent, We groan, being burdened, not that we have been unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. The logic of a tent maker. We have a tent we're living in, and even if you destroy that tent, 
God's making us a tent with His hands, not by our hands, that no one can take away. And it is the heavenly tent that we will live in for all of eternity. That's the logic of a tent maker. And you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Luke 14, 14. Jesus saying that for those who assist and reach out to the poor who cannot help themselves and cannot repay you, God will repay you when He resurrects your dead body, gives you a heavenly body, and then He'll make payment to you for your good deeds. What motivates us to good deeds? The power of God through the resurrection motivates us to good deeds. Not the threat of hell. That doesn't, resur- that doesn't motivate the believer. The threat of hell discourages the unbeliever to cry out to grace. But once in grace, a man doesn't look anymore at the threat of hell. He looks at the promise of a resurrection and he says, For that, I am toiling away in this bodily tent which will be redeemed at the final coming and will be given a glorious tent. And then God will repay me for all that He has done through me in this life. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment, Jesus says. John 5, 29. These are just a smattering of the verses that teach us that the second resurrection is certain. It is the first resurrection that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 15, or the first resurrection from the dead of those who believe. That's, that's what he's speaking of in 1 Corinthians 15. Why is it so important? Why do I drive this point home? Because in our day, and you're about to see it live and in person on the big screen by all the powers of Tom Hanks and, and those who go with him, the Da Vinci Code, which says this is life. A Gnostic Gospel, which says your physical life is no good and you're living in the Spirit, and you will die in the Spirit, and you will ever be in the Spirit. This is not the truth of God. Your body is going to be resurrected. There is going to be a physical resurrection. Your body is going to be resurrected. This tent is going to be changed to a heavenly tent. And I'm looking forward to that day. I'm groaning. I don't know about you, but I feel like Paul in Romans chapter 7, almost every moment of every day. Paul reminded the Corinthians in verses 1 through 3 that they have believed in the resurrection. The resurrection is as much a part of the gospel as the death on the cross. If there's no resurrection, then as I said Friday night for those who were here, then God is a sadistic murderer. If He doesn't resurrect Christ from the dead, then He is an evil God, not a good God. But He didn't leave Him in the grave. He brought Him to power and subjected all things under His feet through the resurrection. The cross to the world is foolish because it seems as if God has crucified the only good thing that ever lived and there's no hope if He's going to crucify Him. I'm not perfect. If He'll kill Jesus, He'll surely kill me. But that's not the logic of the Bible. The logic of the Bible is He poured His wrath out on Christ so that He might be satisfied and then resurrect Him from the dead. And then in that, show us the power of of resurrection, the power of faith, the power of believing in this resurrection. So he says you have believed. And logically, according to 12 through 19, if you believe in Jesus' resurrection, then you will be resurrected. Logically. If Christ is resurrected and you have faith in Christ, then you will have the same gift of resurrection that He has. 
They must also believe in their own resurrection, Paul is saying. Now down in verse 20 through 28, Paul is going to discuss three ideas or three points about the resurrection of the believer. Number one, Jesus is resurrected. He reinforces this. Number two, Jesus will resurrect the saved. And number three, Jesus will restore all things on the earth. And that's our outline for this Easter message. It's simple, but yet profound. Look at it in this text. Jesus is resurrected. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 22. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We have the argument of Paul that because of Christ's resurrection, we can be sure of a resurrection of our bodies if we have faith in Him. Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus did not become the first fruits some point after His resurrection or maybe after His ascension, But Jesus, at the moment He was resurrected, is the first fruits of the resurrection. Now, you have to understand Old Testament belief and Israel's nation, national laws given by God to understand this. Leviticus 23, you write it down in the margin there next to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20 and 21. Leviticus 23 gives us uh, our theology for this. 23, verse 10, where Israel is commanded to take the first fruits of their labor, offer them to God Almighty on the altar as an offering to Him of the harvest. Before the harvest, you're to gather the first fruits and lay them on the altar, and then that will guarantee, that is a picture of a guarantee of a future harvest. When the crop is finished, when the work is done, when all the labor is done, gather the first fruits, place them on the altar, And in this, you're worshiping me because what you're saying is, God, you have fulfilled your promise to us of a harvest. Now, the first fruits is significant when you put it in Jesus. And when Paul uses it, this is definitely what he's talking about because Jesus is the first fruit in this way. He is the result of a lot of labor. He labored over us, He labored over the Father's wrath. He died, He was buried. He was unseen by man for three days and three nights. And then God raised him from the dead as a first fruit, a guarantee of a future resurrection. He, like the Old Testament, is a picture to us of God's fulfillment of a harvest. All the labor has been done. And now God is saying, thus it shall be. I'm going to give you a resurrection. And here is the proof of it. If I raise my son from the dead, I'm going to raise you to faith but that are in faith from the dead so that's it's a picture of the future harvest that's what we have we know our resurrection will be like his and then also it's a guarantee it's not only a picture it's a guarantee paul speaks of a permanent resurrection in verse 20 he speaks of this not as a resurrection like we saw often in the new testament especially in the old testament when people were raised from the dead and then they had to die again In this resurrection, nobody will die again. This is it. It's over. It's finished. Once to die and then the judgment. And so we're resurrected to eternal life. We'll never taste death. Those who are asleep, you see that in your verse. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep is a reference to believers who have died. Their spirits are with the Lord in this moment, at this very time. They are with the Lord. Some of you, unfortunately, have gotten bad teaching on this idea because I've heard you express it over the death of a friend or a lost one, and I want to set your mind at ease. People who are dead are not in some soul sleep somewhere. People who are dead are not wandering around in the abyss of darkness waiting and hoping that they'll be resurrected. People who are dead in Christ are in His presence at this very moment in the soul, in their spirit. And they are crying out, how long until you redeem us? How long until you bring our bodies up? They're not satisfied with being in the spirit. They're there and they're happy, but they're longing, they're groaning for the resurrection. We want a body. Humans were created to be physical. We will be physical throughout the ages. You're not going to cease to be a physical being because you go to heaven. In the long term, we will be back in a physical body that is without sin and without corruption and perfected the way God created it in the Garden of Eden. We will be perfect. And this time, no sin, no temptation, no fall. It will be a perfect world and a perfect heaven and a perfect place and a perfect tent made by the hands of God to worship Him in. And so, this is not as if they are wandering somewhere. I know I've heard many of you anguish over, where is my dead friend? Where is my dead? I know they believe in Jesus, but now are they in darkness? Are they alone? No. And I'll give you some scriptural proof. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says, Paul says, yes, we are of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. Because at first you would say, why are we a good courage, Paul, if we're separated from the Lord in this life? What's to be of good courage about? He finishes his thought. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. You see, Paul says, even though my, I'm created to be a physical being in the fallen state, I'd rather be out of the body and with the Lord in the Spirit, even then waiting on the resurrection with Him there. Philippians 1.23, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. See, he's saying at the moment they crucify me, kill me, boil me, whatever they do to me to take me out of this life, Caesar may do it, and immediately I'll be set free from this body of sin and this struggle and this pain that I experience every day, and I'll be with Jesus. And so that's the best for me. Now, he was hard caught between the two because it was best for the church that he remain on the earth. And so he loved the church and he was staying and almost it's sacrificial. He's being sacrificial. I'll give up my desire to be with the Lord in this moment for you. What an what a assurance you should have of being with God, with Christ. And the thief on the cross. Jesus from the cross says, looking at the man... You will be with me this very day in paradise. It doesn't sound like Jesus has any question about where the man is going, nor that he's going to sleep in some soul sleep somewhere. He's going to be with the Lord. And so if you have dead ones in the faith, maybe you just went through that and you have some doubt in your mind or concern, be at peace. They are with Jesus Christ if they were in, with Him in this life through faith. If they walk by faith and not by sight here, they are with Him now and they're groaning for the 
resurrection of the body. Paul teaches us not only that he's speaking of a permanent resurrection, not only that Jesus is the first fruits of that resurrection, but Paul teaches us that Jesus brings life as Adam brought death. It's unfortunate to me that so many read this and use it as a proof text for universal salvation. They reason like this. Isn't the word all in the text? All died in Adam and all will live in Christ. And doesn't all mean all? And to be careful, that's slippery logic. Because, listen to this. Maybe I would say um, to you today, all of Grace Fellowship is going to eat after the church service. Would that be a true statement? Well, it could be a true statement if 50 of us went. Although our membership role is 100 or 150. Why? Because it's all who are in attendance here today. All who are in attendance went to eat. Or we could even say, interpret it all this way. All who wanted to go and eat with Grace Fellowship went and ate with Grace Fellowship. So in that sense, all of Grace Fellowship went to eat after church. Now, we don't make any pretense that people who aren't with us today and hear me announce that could go eat with us because they don't even know we're doing it. All right? So we can reason from the stance that all did go and eat because all who desired it went, all who were here went. Maybe that, uh, maybe that is the way to understand all. I, I believe it is. Uh, if I make the statement, I ate all the banana pudding. I like to make pubs every now and then for some banana pudding. It's been a while since I had some good banana pudding. Now, do, I, do you take that and you say, no, you've got to take all literally. So does that mean I ate all the banana pudding in the whole world and there's not ever going to be any more banana pudding? That would be heaven. But it wouldn't be reality here, would it, in the body? I couldn't eat all banana pudding from all time. That which you ate last time you ate banana pudding and that which they will eat later when other people make banana pudding. I can't consume all banana pudding. So that could mean I ate all the banana pudding in my refrigerator. It could mean I ate all the banana pudding after you got done eating the banana pudding you wanted. All can mean something besides universal all, right? You see my logic? And so when it says all in Adam died and all in Christ are raised, we've got to understand what he means by the word all. It's a similar perplexing perplexing problem uh, when we look at Romans 5. Right? Same th- if you've studied Romans 5, you think, same problem. This is the same one recounted. Now, what does it mean? And I'm, I'm, we're going to read the text here so we can grasp, try to grasp this meaning. For as in Adam all die, verse 22, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. It is uh, first, just as Adam the man, I want to make this point in Paul's logic, first, Adam represents every man who ever lived in all the earth. And we're taught that in Romans 5. Everybody born after him is born in his sin. It's passed down to you. He's the progenitor of sin. He passes down. He's the federal head. He's our representative in the flesh. It's not good logic for you to say, if I had been in Adam's shoes, I wouldn't have sinned. Yes, you would have. In him, you did sin. And if you had been in his place... Don't be so haughty as to think you wouldn't have sinned. You would have. It's a guarantee. 
sound logic. There was nothing he could have done but sin in this case. And so you would have sinned, and I would have sinned, and we did sin in him. He was standing before God as a representative for all of us. And so like that, Christ stands as the head, the, the federal ruler or head of everyone who has faith in him. You can't have Jesus as the head and representative of us unless you have Adam as your first representative. Paul never divides the two. When he says Jesus died as a substitution for your sin, he's reasoning by the logic that because you were in Adam, you were represented by Adam, and now you have been translated, transferred, moved over to a new ruler through the cross, Jesus Christ. You can't have substitutionary death on the cross unless you believe all of us sinned in Adam. You can't have the two separate. You have them together. They're a completion of the puzzle. They're a picture that the text and the Bible draws for us. So by this, Paul is clearly teaching the federal ruler or headship of Adam and Jesus. Everybody in the flesh is from Adam, but not everybody is under Jesus. Only those who believe in Him. Second, everyone who is represented by Adam dies. This is the truth. Everybody who was born of man faces death it was appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment you are going to die i'm going to die because of adam's sin and because of our sin in adam we will die and everyone who is represented by christ shall be raised from the dead so understanding all that it doesn't have to be universal we try to come to an understanding so, what's, how is he using it in this case? Adam is the father of all men who die. That's everybody. Christ is the father of all men who are made alive. There is nobody who will be resurrected from the dead who is not through Christ resurrected from the dead. That's what Paul says. For in Adam all died, and look what he says next, and in Christ all shall be made alive. Everyone who's brought from resurrection to eternal life and not eternal Death, which is the second resurrection of judgment, everyone in this first resurrection, the one, the second Easter that we're still waiting on to happen, everyone in that comes through Jesus. Nobody comes by their own merit. Nobody comes by the merit of another. Nobody comes in any other religious form. They only come through Jesus Christ. If they don't come by Him, then they are damned for eternity. That's what Paul's reasoning is. Far from being a universal statement, this is a statement of logic and defense of faith in Christ alone for salvation. That's his argument here. And so, I will say this. Anyone who wants to try to make this passage, if you're a person who says, well, I understand, but I think God's a God of love, and so He's going to resurrect everybody, then you have to deal with the hundreds of texts which speak of judgment, I only have to deal with two or three texts that seem to imply something based on the word all. I have a much easier time understanding my text than you will have trying to reason out of eternal damnation because it is everywhere in the Scripture clearly presented that if you are not in Christ, you are damned and your damnation is eternal and you will never face death, although you live in death for eternity. This is the picture of Scripture. Paul is emphasizing 
the bodily consequence of the actions of Adam and Christ. There are spiritual consequences, Paul says, in other texts. But in this text, physical death came by Adam and the resurrection of your physical body in the second Easter, that first resurrection of the dead, will be through Christ. And so we have the picture. What has Paul said so far? So we catch up here. Resurrection is the first, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruit. It's the guarantee. It's the picture of how our resurrection will look. We will have a body like His when we're resurrected. We will look like Him. We will have powers similar to His to move through physical beings and all these things. Don't doubt that. And then the truth also is that it's a guarantee for us. And He then reasons that if you are in Adam, you will face death through the physical body and then implication spiritual death. But if you're in Christ, you'll only face physical death and then resurrection to life. That's how he's reasoned so far. So Jesus was resurrected is his first point. His second point is Jesus brings resurrection to believers. That's what you came to hear today. I hope. A message of hope on Easter. Not just historical facts about Jesus being raised from the dead. I hope you came to understand how does that apply to me. This is how it applies. Paul gives us an order here of resurrection. Jesus Christ was first in resurrection. We've already made this argument well. He is the first fruits of the harvest of resurrection. And the harvest of resurrection will be at His return. Okay, that's the first point of His order. Christ was resurrected. Second, the first group to be resurrected will be the church. There is some debate about this text. I don't wish to enter into debate. I just wish to make a statement, and then I'll talk with you about the debate if you want to. This includes all saints. Hear that correctly. Galatians says, Abraham believed in the gospel and was saved by it in Christ. Through Christ, Abraham was saved. Through Christ, Adam was saved. Through Christ, all of the old saints... Old Testament saints were saved. So when Paul says, all who are in Him will be raised from the dead, I'm left to believe that's all everybody that will be raised. There's no reason not to reason that way. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. If Abraham is dead in Christ, which I believe the Bible teaches clearly, then he will be raised up in this Easter. Resurrection. The only way you end up, I believe, believing Abraham has the weight for the dead from Pentecost to whenever Jesus comes back to be raised and then another resurrection and then Adam, I mean then uh, Abraham, is if you put a chart on the Bible and prove your chart. I'm saying take the chart away and look at the Scripture. It says all who are in Christ were raised from the dead at that moment in the twinkling of an eye. They're picked up out of the grave as Christ was. And what I'm saying to you is that's all believers. It's all believers. And if Abraham's not a believer, then Houston, we have a problem. So I believe this with all of my heart that I will see Abraham physically I will see Moses physically and they will be raised with Christ. And they'll join Him there, coming from 
heaven to the earth. The only other group to be resurrected will be the unrighteous who are raised bodily to face the judgment. These people will suffer emotionally, spiritually, and physically for the rest of eternity in judgment because of their rejection of the only way to heaven, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is raised. Those who believe in Jesus are raised. And Jesus will restore all things under the rule of God for God's glory. 24 through 28. This is the part I long to tell you. Then comes the end. When He delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all things, all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to God who put all things in subjection under Christ that God may be all in all. We have the worship of the Deity, the Trinity, the Triunity that Jesus Christ is offering back His church as a reward to God the Father for His glorious and eternal plan of redemption. We are the gift of the Son to the Father. You have been proved righteous, God. And now we'll celebrate with Him. We're Christ's gift. The church is that gift. There are many details that can be disputed, but understand this. Jesus Christ will rule over all men and all creation. That's why I believe Matthew 16, 13 through 20, when Jesus asked Peter, Who do you say I am? And he says, I say you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, Peter, on this rock, your confession, a confession like yours, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church has been in retreat far too long. I want to say to you on this Easter morning, we are conquering death and hell as we move the gospel to the ends of the earth. We are not defeated. Jesus was not raised from the dead so that we might see a picture of defeat. He was raised from the dead so we might revel in His victory over death and over the grave and then preach it to the ends of the earth. Now that's why we send missionaries from here to the end of the earth. If we're just going to preach a doom and gloom message... Stay home. They got doom and gloom. What they need is the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which they, to this point, may not have heard of. So we go in missions, and we do what? We preach the gospel as we build hospitals, as we're benevolent, as we feed the poor, as we do all these things which they cannot repay for us. Don't put them in debt. Do the things and say, God will pay us back, and we're going to preach the gospel. You know what thrills my soul? More than the fact that our physical army marches in in the Muslim world, which I understand to be a a, a hard thing, a grievous thing to so many who are believers in those countries like Iraq and Iran. And there are other countries. You know what sets me on fire for shod? Is that just like those armies are marching in that Middle East country, the army of God is marching with hope. What sets me on fire is that missionaries in Iraq are saying, you can be saved today, not by this physical army, but by Jesus Christ who is risen from the dead. Don't you want Him? And they say, absolutely. And that moment, they are free because the Son has set them free. It doesn't matter what a dictator says. 
He can stamp all the bricks he wants with the name of Nebuchadnezzar. It won't protect him from Jesus Christ who marches victoriously because he's been raised from the dead. They can talk about bombs of Allah all they want. And I say we have Jesus Christ and he has set us free. And so we're not a subjection to you. We're subjected to him. And your subjection is doomed. You will be subjected because he will subject you. This is the power of the resurrection. How long will we go on in this defeated, ho-hum existence that we have no hope? We have hope because He has been resurrected. This is why the Great Commission is a victorious declaration and not some wishful hope of what we might do. That's the, that, it's not up there. That was the greatest passage to have up here, and you did. God led you in that. Go, therefore, and make disciples in all nations. As soon as He's resurrected, He makes... This statement, all authority has been given unto me. Look, heaven and on earth. What does that mean? All of it has been subjected to Him, and now He's subjecting it through us. We are victorious through Jesus Christ and His resurrection. And the army is marching, and the gates of hell cannot prevail because Jesus is establishing His church. And so He says, go and make disciples. He's not hoping you do that. He's knowing you will do it because He's doing it in and through you. This is the power of the resurrection. The gospel is flying as a salvation banner over conquered lands of saved and lost men knowing that those who are in faith will be raised up and those who are in Adam will be finally subjected when He returns. We are taking the message of victory of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. And in that, we're bringing the end. After the elect are gathered to Christ, the end will come. The kingdom of God, in verse 24, the kingdom of God is here in the Spirit of Christ and the body of the church. That's why when He entered into His ministry, He said, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. I'm preaching you the kingdom of God. You're believing in the kingdom of God and you're ushering it in all over the globe. And that's why he says, go from Jerusalem to Judea to all the ends of the earth. Because the whole world needs to know that the kingdom has come. That Jesus is here. When he delivers the kingdom to the Father, which he will do, he will have conquered by the power of the gospel all other authority on earth and in hell. We put too much trivial belief in some physical declaration that may or may not be obvious. What we need to do is take Romans 1, 16 and 17 for what it says. That all power is in the gospel. And the gospel is conquering and victorious. That's what we need to believe. We need to hold on to that. It's very, very important. So, he's going to deliver and give after uh, the end has come. When the end has come, he's going to give the elect to God. As a gift, as a triumphant portion, a gift. Paul tells us that death is the last enemy to be defeated. 25 through 26. Follow his logic. When was it defeated? Well, in principle, it was defeated at the cross and through the resurrection. And practically, it is being defeated in all of us who believe in Jesus Christ and are waiting and groaning for the resurrection. And then, in the end, it will be practically done when Jesus presents us to the Father. And death is no more. And He wipes away every tear. And we rule and reign with Him. And so we have this picture of restoration. 
Christ, restoring through the gospel what God created in the beginning. And Paul gives us a glimpse of the picture of this restoration in 24 through 28. When he says, look at the wonderful message. I want us to look at the wonderful message of Easter. It's not just that Christ came up out of the ground. That's glorious. But that's not all. Christ came up that we might be restored. We should sing and praise this wonderful Savior, Redeemer, and King. Our God reigns. Death is defeated. And the sting of death is removed by the victory of Christ over the grave. No one can ever hold the threat of death over you because through, though your physical body may die for a season, because of Christ's resurrection, you will be raised from the dead to eternal life. Easter is the message of Jesus conquering death forever by His powerful resurrection. Won't you believe in that victory today? I plead with you to come to this Lord of life so that you may enjoy Him forevermore. Jesus is the only one who can defeat sin and death for you. So I say, come to Him in faith and experience resurrection. Reject Him in unbelief and face judgment for eternity. Father, I agree with Peter. There are difficult things that our brother Paul writes. And this is one of those texts that at times can be very difficult, but I believe laying aside the wisdom of man and devices of man and thus letting the Spirit speak through Your Word, through Your mind, that we can clearly see that the argument is not about anything except that You died and were raised from the dead and we are vouchsafed through You in the resurrection and that resurrection's coming, and when it comes, we will be finally seen to be victorious over all the earth, and then we will rule and reign restored into our original, and even better than our original state, so that you might say once again, looking at your great creation, this is very good. We long for that day, Jesus. And for those who are not saved that are here with us this morning, maybe it's their only trip to church for this whole year. Maybe something drew them. Maybe they just came as a favor. I don't know. But I do know this. If they trust in Jesus Christ this morning, if they call out to You, Lord, they can have victory in life because You are victorious. And so if they are to call, You will have to call them. And if they are to believe, you will have to gift them with faith. And you will have to bring them to yourself because all of us are resistant. Even after salvation, we are resistant to obedience and to what is right in your eyes. And so God, please overcome their unbelief and bring them to the feet of the King who gives them victory over over death and the grave and life forevermore to praise and worship Him. It's in Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. I want to, before we rush out,